0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to be reading 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 25. So folks, listen. This is God's word. And the king, this is David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The lame and the blind shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, El- uh, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is God's word. Well, David has just become king over Israel. We just read about that last week. And now the author of Second Samuel is beginning a new section here. He wants to describe what the kingdom of David looks like. Okay, he wants to give you a feel for what it's like for David to be king. In the rest of this chapter, it's a series of scenes that show David's kingship in action. Okay, And this is really helpful for us because it shows us the fruit of David's character and leadership as a king who's following God. Prior to taking the throne, David is presented as a close to perfect leader. Right? Always seems to do the right thing. We've seen that over and over and over again. The question, though, is how will David be once he's on the throne, right? Once you get what you're after, once you get and achieve your goal, do you change? You become someone different. Israel expected that God's kingdom would reign through David, that God would be alive in David's reign, and that David's reign would be real, effective, and practical. It would make a difference in their lives. Okay, and I think we want the same thing today. You know, I think even you think about the non-Christians that you know, most non-Christians, I mean, they'd like to know what does Christianity actually look like, right? Practically speaking, and they they ask, is it real, right? Does it work, and does it actually matter? These are questions that the people around us ask, and so this passage answers that question with, again, four images of David's reign. Um, the author of 2 Samuel put these four scenes together being very selective so that we can see a big picture, okay? This isn't exhaustive. This is selective so that you can see what David's reign was like. And as we see these four scenes played out, we're going to get a picture of what God's kingdom looks like in our lives too, okay? So four points today, if you want to take notes. Uh, they're real simple, Or one word each. We're going to see family, neighbors, sin, and God. Okay, those are the four scenes, family neighbors, sin, and God. So first, let's look at family. This is verses 6 through 10. David's, the first act, the first scene is David conquering Jerusalem to make it his capital city. Now, I want to just stop here because I don't think we've seen this for a while, but what's up with the fighting and the wars? Right? That strike you? What's up with all the wars? Why is God fighting? I thought Jesus was about peace. What's the deal here, Right? If you have that question, I had that question this week. A lot of people have that question. Um, this is one of those places where, almost more important than anything else, you have to read the Bible in context. Okay? You, have to see the, you have to understand the flow of what's going on here. Um, these Jebusites, these people who were living in Jerusalem, they had been thumbing their nose at God for 400 years. Um, for 400 years. We don't even know what that is. I, I just said it. You just heard it. You still have no clue what it's like, 400 years. I mean, our country's been around for about 250, 260, right? I mean, just I, we're barely halfway there. These fo- we don't even remember what our great grandparents' life was like, right? Let alone 400 years ago. But for 400 years, these folks have been thumbing their nose at God, and it's it's interesting because you can see it even in the text with their attitude. People back then, just like people today, they mistake God's patience for leniency right? They think, well, since God doesn't always punish immediately, he must not care, right? Or he looks the other way, or it's not a big deal. Um, And then the other thing that happens is people then change their image of God, and God in their mind becomes this sort of weak beggar, right? He's sitting there wringing his hands, just sort of hoping that all the bad people will stop being bad, right? I mean, that's the image That people have, and whether they say it or not, that's the image that their lives demonstrate they have of who God is. This is not the picture that you get from reading the Bible. This is not the picture of God. God, in in Scripture, is a warrior. He is a warrior king who fights for his people and does battle with their enemies. That is the God of Scripture. That's what we see in this text. The title, the Lord of hosts, right? Um, Verse 10, The Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Do you know what the word hosts means? I'm not sure why we still use this because it's an old word. The word hosts means armies, armies. Christmas is coming, right? The angels appear in the heavenly hosts, and we think about angels with wings and lullabies and harps. No, these are angelic warrior beings arrayed in an army coming to earth. The Lord is the God of hosts. He's the God of armies. He fights. God, we don't have a namby-pamby godlet, one author said this week I read, um, who is housebroken, right? God is not that. God's people have a God who is a smasher and a fighter. He is a smasher and a fighter. A God who is, Psalm 24 verse 8 says, who is mighty in battle. He's mighty in battle. This is a picture, the, you know, one of the pictures that the Bible gives us. In this passage, we see God fighting for David. He will fight for you when you believe in him. He will fight for you. He will fight with you against your enemies, against the struggles that you have in your life. And so this isn't something to be afraid of, because actually, ironically, if you fear the Lord in an appropriate way and you give him reverence and awe, then he will fight for you and you'll have nothing to fear. God is a warrior. And so, again, we need to read about these battle scenes in context. But David's first act in this chapter as king is to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Okay, and he does this because he picks Jerusalem, a couple of reasons. First, for power, for power. The Jebusites, the folks who were living in Jerusalem, they were a particularly thorny uh, foe in the land. In fact, when Joshua first brought Israel into the land and they began to conquer, the Jebusites, they couldn't do it. They couldn't defeat. They had great victory over lots and lots of the land and over so many of the peoples that were in the land. But the Jebusites were strong. In Joshua 15, verse 63, it says this, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, same folks we have here. The people of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So Joshua couldn't drive them out. And the Jebusites knew. They knew that they were in a pretty good place. Verse 6, we see kind of their bravado, their uh, their chutzpah, right? They say to David, you won't come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. They're saying, look, we don't even have to defend. We can take our lame and our blind and put them on the gates, put them on the, you know, on the roof, on, you know, on the walls, and you won't be able to make it in. The walls of Jerusalem, just to give you a picture of, of just how formidable this place was, um, the, the walls of the city, they fit into the slopes of a mountain range on three sides. So you would have to literally scale mountains, right? That's difficult to scale mountains, right, especially when the weather's bad, um, so it would be impossible to scale the mountains to attack. And then it was, a, it, was a, it was a radical uphill climb on that fourth wall, okay, that fourth wall coming up into Jerusalem. And so, you know, it was, it was a pretty arrogant, but it was a put-down. I mean, they had, they, you know, they had the place. So the idea here was if David could conquer the Jebusites in Jerusalem, he would be demonstrating that he's an even stronger and more powerful leader than Joshua. And so this would have been a demonstration of God's power if David could take Jerusalem. Now, the second thing that motivated David was love, was love, ironically. It's interesting. Why? Well, David knew he had been living in Hebron, which was in one of the tribes. It was in the land of Judah. Okay? It was part of one of the tribes where it was David's family, and it was in the south. And so it really couldn't have been an acceptable capital to reign over the entire nation. There were 12 tribes, 12 families living in. And if David sort of set up shop in his own family, then there would have been accusations. There would have been frustration. And so David says, you know what? I'm not going to pick a place in the south. I'm also not going to pick a place in the north for the opposite reasons. And so Jerusalem sort of was on the outlying of any of the tribe's land, and it was really in the middle of the north and the south. And so for David, what David was doing was David was saying, I am going to reign in between the two divisions of Israel. I'm going to reign between the north and the south. Translated, I mean, the image here is, I'm going to be impartial as a leader. That I'm going to reign and I'm going to love the entire family of God. Okay, I'm not just going to love my own folks or the people who are like me. I'm going to love everybody in God's family. And so Jerusalem, was because it was centrally located, was a good compromise. And so we see that David succeeded. There's not a whole lot of detail here on the battle, other than verse 10 um, says, that uh, that David became greater and greater because the Lord the God of hosts was with him. And so here's the image that I have as I'm reading this. David says, "You know what? I really like Jerusalem. It would demonstrate God's power in me and it would show love to the whole nation." And so David goes and God says, "Absolutely." God says, "I'm going to make that happen. David, you want to show love to the whole family, you want to show my power? Okay, bingo, you've got my blessing. Go for it." You see the picture? David says, Lord, I'm going to do this because it will glorify you and it will show love to the family. And God says, absolutely. David put himself into the place where it was easy for God to bless him. It was easy for God to say, um, that he wanted to do it. And then how does it happen? David says, um, in verse eight, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. So this is interesting. Um, The scholars, there's a lot of different opinions, but let me just give you an image of how this works. The city of Jerusalem, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why you want to be careful about getting too protected an area is you need access to water. Now, what was unique about Jerusalem was that there was this spring, okay? There was a spring of water very close to Jerusalem, but it was outside the walls. And they actually have dug this up so that the archaeology supports this. So imagine that this is the wall of Jerusalem, Okay, and so here's the city. So there's the wall that protects us. The spring is over here, it's on the outside of the wall. But the spring is about 100 feet deep. Okay, and so there is seemingly, uh, yeah, so, so the way it worked was that they built tunnels from in the city. They went down, and then they went under the ground, and then they hit this spring okay and they got all the water that they needed and so not only do you have this incredibly defensible position but you had an you had a source of water that nobody knew about and so you could live there forever you couldn't siege the place because you could have because there was a continual supply of water you get the picture well somehow david knows about this somehow text doesn't tell us other than the fact that it says that the lord was with him and so Um, How David knew about the spring, it shows the practicality of God's blessings in his life. Who knows how God revealed it to him, but somehow David knew and found out. And so what David did was he got down to this place, and he did one of two things. Either his men sat there, and just every time a bucket would go down the tunnel or somebody would come down the tunnel, they'd kill him. Or they just climbed up through the waterway, got into the city, and attacked The text doesn't tell us exactly which of those two things happened, but somehow through this water shaft, um, this impossibly impregnable city was taken down by the power of God. By the power of God. And so the idea here, is that God was with David. That's what verse 10 says. And God wasn't just with him, but made David greater and greater. Because the idea here is that God sees someone who acts like David, who says, I want to put God's power on display in my life. And I want to love the entire family of God. And, David, and God says, I want that person's influence to grow. I want that person to grow. I want that person's authority to grow. I want David I want the whole nation to be able to look at David and see what he's doing because I want everybody else to follow him. That then hits me because David's love for the family applies to us and our need to love the church, right? As we're focused on growing gospel relationships for us, one of those relationships is relationships in the church. How are you doing showing love and care for the rest of the family here at Harbour? Right? What are you doing to show concrete love and care for others? How are you serving people in the church? David was doing a great job here. The scene demonstrates that, and it's a call to us. Are you going deeper with your relationships in the church? So David shows us family. Our second point is that David shows us uh, neighbors. This is verses 11 and 12. These are just two verses here. The king of Tyre sends these gifts to David. Now, Tyre was way, way up in the north, okay, way up in the northern part of Israel. Um, you could say David, that Hiram was David's sort of immediate royal neighbor to the north. And uh, Tyre was not a part of God's people, okay? Hiram was not a Jew. He wasn't a member of Israel. And and yet here in this passage, in these two verses, we see that Hiram is sending his best wood, right, cedars. He's sending the, the tree, these trees and his people to build David a house. It's kind of interesting. This will almost be like the city coming in and saying, Harbour, we're going to build you a church. Right? That kind of idea. Now, Hiram, his reign, if you look at the dates, there was only a 10-year overlap between Hiram and David's reign. Okay? And Hiram didn't start reigning in Tyre until about 20 years after David started to reign. Okay? And so what do we see here? Well. This means that verses 11 and 12 happened at least 20 years after David became king. Why is that important? Well, because what we see here is that during the first 20 years of David's reign, David was building strong relationships with his non-Jewish neighbors. David was building strong relationships with his non-Jewish neighbors. And I think this is connected to verse 10, because as David grew greater and greater, he then cared even more and more for others. So as David's reach grew, so did his embrace. Okay, the farther, the stronger David got, the more people he chose to love. All the way to the point where you have Hiram, this other king, supplying the wood and the people to build David a palace. That's a big deal. And David interprets what Hiram does as a fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So here what we're seeing is the fulfillment of God's promises. That's how David interprets it. Now, what promises are we talking about? If you go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to where Israel started, God began with one man, Abram. He became Abraham, and in Genesis 12, God gives Abraham the initial promise that Abraham would become a nation. And in Genesis 12, verse 3, it says, God says to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, that's the promise. And so David's relationship with Hiram of Tyre, it shows that during the 20 years of David's reign, David has been such a blessing to the nations around him Such a blessing to the non-Jewish neighbors that Hiram would give his best to help David. Do you see that? And it's interesting because verse 12, at the beginning, God knew that God had established him king over Israel. David knows that God is providing for his needs. David is seeing this and saying, wow, God, I can't believe it. God, you did this for me. And then the second half of verse 12, God exalted David's kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Again, what this is saying is that God is telling the rest of the nation, if you want to know what I want, it's him. If you want to know what life in my kingdom looks like, it looks like David. Someone who both loves the family and who loves his neighbors. So he's loving all of Israel and he's loving those folks who are not part of Israel. I mean, this is God's pattern. He finds people who are doing his will, and he says, look at them. He establishes them. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. He's scanning the globe, looking for someone whose heart is truly devoted to him. And when he finds that person, he establishes them. He supports them. He builds them up, and he draws people to them so that other people will follow their example. And so for us, I mean, we've said this a hundred times before, but this this is a great example for us because as Christians, Jesus blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. Jesus came and died not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. And so when we love our neighbors, who are outside the church, when we love the city, when we love the folks around us who aren't Christians, we are giving them a foretaste of God's love for them. We're teaching them that God cares and that God is moving and wants to care more and more to the point of even saving them from their sins. And so David here is the example for us on this other piece of growing gospel relationships, right? We're wanting to grow relationships in the church also, we're, to, we need to, we're growing our relationships with the world. How are you doing with that? How many folks do you know? How many folks are you blessing who aren't Christians? How much time are you spending with people so that they can come to grips and understand and be blessed by your faith? That's the question for all of us. It's what we're aiming for this year as a church. We want to grow the number and the depth of these relationships. So we've got family, we've got neighbors. Our third point is sin. Sin. This is verses 13 to 16. In the midst of all this good news about David, amazing example in so many ways, verses 13 to 16 stand, it's kind of a mixed report. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to him. From the perspective of the world, this is just another way to describe David's success. We talked about that a a couple weeks ago. Because if you add these 11 children to the six sons that were born to David from six different women in, uh, in Hebron, you know, 17 is a pretty impressive progeny. It's not too bad, right? The purpose of that was for political alliances because you're not trusting that God's going to take care of you, um, or it's to make sure that your line goes on, right? Again, demonstrating a lack of trust. And so though this is an impressive progeny, this would have wooed the, the folks around David. This would have turned heads. Wow, 17, that's amazing. God's blessing must surely be with him. But this is sin. This is not right. This is sexual infidelity, and it isn't blessed. Um, don't let anybody tell you that the Bible condones this kind of behavior. That's an objection that gets thrown out a lot. It's been thrown in my face, and, and there's really two Two ways to answer this. The easiest one is, if you want to know what the Bible thinks about this, just keep reading. Just keep reading. We're in chapter 6. Just wait until these kids grow up. Wait until, if you, if you jump to chapter 11, you watch David and his sexual infidelity really gets him into trouble. Gets him into trouble, but he doesn't, huh, he doesn't quite learn his lesson. But then the kids get old. And, and let me just say, Chapters 11 and following after this show that David's activity here, it leads to death. It leads to the destruction of David's life, of his family, and of the kingdom. The Bible is not condoning this behavior. It is not saying that this is something that God honors. The blessings of God that come in the midst of this are in spite of what David is doing. and We'll talk about that in a second. There's something else, though, just in our own text that shows that the narrator is not commending David for what he's doing. Um, In the four scenes, there's something that is common to all of them except one. In the first scene, verses 6 through 10, in verse 10, it says the Lord God of hosts was with David. In the second scene, verse 12, the Lord had established David king over Israel and exalted David's kingdom. And then in the fourth scene, Right? Verse 19, it says the Lord spoke to David. Verse 20, the Lord burst through my enemies before me. Verse 24, the Lord has gone out before you. In every scene in this chapter, as we're getting a depiction of the reign of David, in every scene, the Lord shows up to support David, to prosper David, and to bless him. Except for this. Except for this. The narrator is screaming in his silence. Screaming out. While David is letting his desires rage, God is not with him. He does not show up in verses 13 to 16. Now, this is bad for Israel, but there are some things that we can take from it. I mean, I guess the first thing we can take from it is, man, don't mess around with sin, because it probably won't come back to haunt you right away. I mean, we do enough in our lives that we can sort of avoid the consequences of the stuff that we do when it's wrong but you can't get away with it for long. It will come back. You will reap what you sow. You just can't get away from it. Even the king of Israel couldn't get away. I mean, the news, right? It's not, I mean, you see it all the time. People, you will get found out. And if you don't get found out, guess what you win? If your sin doesn't find you out, you know what you win? You win a life of hiding with your sin. Congratulations. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to be, well, I guess I'm coming after you a little bit. Don't play with your sin. Don't play with it. It's not good for you. It causes death. It causes destruction. It cuts us off from God. God is the source of love, of joy, of happiness, of abundance. God is a source of kindness. And when we cut ourselves off from him, when we give in to sin, we cut ourselves off from him. And those things diminish in our life. Don't play with sin. I love the Bible's honesty. You know, the Bible is not trying to paint a too rosy picture of David. It's honest where he fails. His failures are clear. When the Bible's leaders are wrong, the Bible doesn't hide it. And that, that makes me trust the Scriptures. It's a reason to trust it. The leaders that are put forth, um, they're shown in all of their weaknesses. I think the other thing, too, that we can see from this is that God can and does use people like David. That if you have failed, if you are failing, God is very eager to use you in in the world. God wants to use you exactly where you are. God will use you. He will take you with all your baggage. If you will come to him, God will use you and can use you in great and magnificent and amazing ways no matter what you're dealing with right now, no matter what you're hiding, if you will come clean with it, the Lord will use you in powerful ways. I mean, this church is an amazing testimony after testimony after testimony of God in his grace finding people and then turning it around and using them to bless others. For us, I mean, this is where the cross comes in, right? If you doubt whether God will receive you back or if you want to know how it is that God can receive you back, It's because of Jesus. It's because that's how much God cares. God cares so much to deal with your sin and to do away with it that he came himself to earth so that he could take it away. Jesus dies for the penalty of your sin so that God's grace can flow to you. Grace is undeserved favor. God will bless you and keep you and protect you and fight for you not if you're perfect like David, but if you are a sinner like David who comes to the cross. Who comes to the cross. And so David is an encouragement that even David lived by grace. Even while he was effectively loving the family, effectively loving his neighbors, with the sin that was going on in his own life, David shows that he also needed grace. We all do. All of us. We all live by grace. We sang that today. So, so that is sin. So we have family, we have neighbors, we have sin. Our last point is that we have God. And this is verses 17 through 25. These are two battles uh, that show David's victorious, uh, his success over the Philistines. Okay, the Philistines was another group of folks that lived in the land that were, not, that were not Jews, and they continually attacked. They were the thorn in the side for the king that was before David. Saul's kingdom was constantly ravaged and oppressed and beaten down uh, and occupied by the Philistines. And this passage, verses 17 to 25, show us two battles where David wins. You know, David defeats the Philistines in this passage. And what's interesting is that other than a brief mention of them in, in a cursory fashion, the Philistines are never mentioned again during David's reign. So what Saul could not do, try as he might, David does. And David ends the tyranny of the Philistines. He overcomes them. He's victorious over them. And what do we learn from these two instances? Well, we see that God was the one who gave David the victory. Right? Look at verse 19. The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And then David defeated them there. And then David said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. And so they call that uh, the Baal Perazim, that means the, the, the god of bursting. It's just a nickname because that's the route that God affected on the Philistines. And then in the second scene, he does the exact same thing. And it's, even, it's, it's different, but it's similar. Verse 24 says, When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. If it wasn't clear in the first battle, it's really clear here in the second battle. David is to go around and then wait until he hears something in the tops of the trees. And the image here is that God sent an angelic army to go and rout the Philistines before David. God gave David the victory. And so what we see here, this shows God's power. It shows that God is powerful to work in our lives, what are you fighting with? I mean, it could be an attitude problem. It could be an addiction. It it could be a relationship issue. What is it that you're fighting right now? What are you struggling to conquer? What are you trying to overcome? If you seek God, if you seek God, that's exactly what David did. At the beginning of both of these battles, David went to the Lord. It's interesting because this characterized David before he became king, right? You remember stories from 1 Samuel where David went to the priests and asked the Lord for answers on specific things. Well, even now, after David is reigning as king, he hasn't forgotten where his power comes from. He continues to seek the Lord. That's what we need to do. Lord God, how can I defeat this issue in my life? Lord, how can I grow in this area of my life? And press into that. You've got to press in. God tells you how to deal with things in Scripture. He tells you how to deal with things in community. Ask other folks that are walking with Jesus. How do I deal with this? How do I overcome this? Will you pray for me? Will you hold me accountable to this? We need those kind of relationships in our lives because we can't do it alone. I think it's interesting, too, that David got two different responses, right? The first time he went, Lord, should I go up? And God says, yes, go up. I'll give them to you. The second time he says, Lord, should I go up? And God said, well, no, don't do that. Go around the back, and let's do it differently this time. We could say a lot about the two different methods there. What I think is interesting, what this highlights for me, is that what David was doing was not a perfunctory ritual. How many times have I said, Lord, okay, I got to go do this. Will you please bless me? And then on I go, right? Lord, could you please bless me? On I go. And I'm not really paying attention to the Lord, but I'm doing this. It's almost like I'm sort of pinching incense and tossing, uh, you know, sort of tossing a five note at God, right? Here, God, here's a 20. Yeah, please bless me here, right? I'm not going to pay attention to anything you say. That's not what David was doing here. David was seeking the Lord. Lord, should I go and do this? And he waited for an answer, waited in a way that gave him two different answers. This is (laughs) waiting on the Lord. This is what we do as we pray. When we pray to the Lord, we ask, Lord, what should we do in this situation? And sometimes it's abundantly clear and we don't need to wait around because there's a passage of Scripture that speaks directly to our situation. Other times, it's complicated, right? I had a situation yesterday where I had to make a decision between honoring my wife and honoring our neighbor and what i did honored my wife and offended my neighbor horribly i think i made the right decision it would have been wise for me to have prayed about it before i did it because i didn't and i think maybe i could have not offended either maybe I'm not sure but we need to seek the lord and that we've talked about listening prayer in the past where you you pray you ask the lord and then you listen God, you want to tell me anything? Are there verses of Scripture that you can bring to mind that would bear on this situation, on on what I should do here? Are there people, Lord, that you would bring to mind that I could ask and get wisdom from? Because you say there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Lord, I think this is what I should do. Is it? Is there a reason I shouldn't do this? Is there a better way? And listen, for me, I, I, I have a pen and paper, and I write whatever comes to mind, if it's a verse, if it's an idea, if it's a person, and I will pursue that, not as though God wrote it in the back of my Bible, but I'll pursue it as though this may be where the Lord is leading me, right? And this is the importance. I mean, David is showing us that seeking God, is, it's the heart of his success, right? I mean, we see here that at the root of everything that David has done, his ability to love the family well, his ability to love his neighbors well, Right? starts with his relationship with God. And so does yours. So does yours. For David, God wasn't a doctrine that David talked about, but a person that David spent time with. I think David shows us <clears throat> what personal growth looks like. And at the same time, David can only be David because God is in him. Right, And for me, that's where I get encouragement. There's times where I read things like this and I think, man, forget it. I'm never going to be like this. And if I look just at David and just at me, that's a pretty rational conclusion. But if I look at God in David and then realize that that same God is in me, then things change. When I realize that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ dwells in my heart, that Jesus himself came down to earth, didn't just come down to earth to be next to me, but that by his spirit comes and lives in me, then I have his love. I have his patience. I have his kindness. I've got his power. And then I just got to walk in that. If you're trusting in Jesus, that same thing is true for you. So often Christians don't live that way because we forget. We just forget that Jesus is truly in us. And that is real. And it does work. And it does matter. If you're not a Christian here today, I would just invite you that if you taste and see, put your faith in Jesus, say to God, God, I'm going to trust and begin to follow Jesus because I think I need your power. I think I need your strength. I need you to help me grow. Or I just want to know you better. When you do that, the Bible says that God's spirit will come and dwell in your heart. And he'll begin to fill you with joy, with happiness, with love, with peace. And you'll find love for the family, love for your neighbors, and a renewed and ever-springing love for God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that your presence in our lives is real. We don't have to make it up. You have changed us from the inside out. You you have worked in our hearts and given us blessing after blessing after blessing, an abundance of perspective, and we thank you for it. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we sit here in front of your word, that your spirit would minister to each one of us. Jesus, there are folks here who need your comfort. Would you give them your comfort and let them know that through the cross and the resurrection, you've taken away their sin? And Jesus, there are folks here who need guidance. Help them to seek you and to listen. Speak clearly through your word, through others, through your spirit, so that those of us who really are looking for wisdom and clarity for a decision in life would have it and be able to move forward with confidence that you're with them. And Jesus, for those folks here who don't know you yet, draw them to yourself. Help them to see that David's life can be theirs, that the blessings and the success of what David has in this passage is what you offer to all who trust in you. We love you and we praise you. Amen.